definitely in our lifetimes, we'll, we'll see humanity uh, really get off the surface of Earth. Three, two, one, zero. We have commit and we have liftoff at 2.13. For example, the, the idea of, of homelessness. Uh, in, in space, there, you, you can't live under a bridge. There are no bridges on the moon. If someone built a bridge in between two hills on the moon, you can't live under it. There's no air to breathe. There's no pressure to keep your, your body from sublimating, essentially. That fundamental resources like Maslow's hierarchy of need level negative one of I, can, I have air to breathe, that is not free in space. And importantly, any space habitat has to account for, for all of it. It has to be accounted in the books. We have to know how many people are using oxygen and generating carbon dioxide because we need a system that can turn carbon dioxide back into oxygen for exactly that many people. And, and so all these resources, not just the air you breathe, the pressure that's there, the space that you take up, that is, that is not free. Welcome to The Disruptors, the podcast about the future of all of us, where we look at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Here, the world's top minds share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at disruptors.fm. To infinity and beyond. Did you ever look out in the night sky and wonder, what's out there? Did you think and dream bigger? Today's guest was inspired by the space race. I know he's had those thoughts, and he's working to get us there. Today we've got Eric Ward, the co-founder and CEO of both Odyne Space and Aiton Engineering, two space tech startups that have tons of promise focused on getting humanity into orbit and beyond. At Odyne, Eric and his team are dealing with Phase 1, the launch, and run a large nanoscale and microsatellite launch program. At Aten Engineering, they're focused on what to do once we get there with asteroid mining and, and how to become an interplanetary and exploratory species. And he's been featured in Fast Company and co-founded the MIT New Space Age Conference. In today's episode, where we go big and we go further, we discuss the main hurdles holding humanity back from becoming a spacefaring civilization, how politics and economics must evolve to suit space, why we're still probably a few years off from a moon or a Mars colony, despite what Elon thinks, the reasons governments won't play a large role in space exploration, and Eric's thoughts on the ethics of space. Ever thought about being kicked out of the habitat? Well, it could happen. It could be moral. We'll discuss. Without further ado, I give you Eric Ward. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Space. What gives? What's what's your story? How did it happen? I mean, so there's the obvious space fanboy part of I think my childhood, a lot of our childhood, and in particular, I bet any anyone really working in the space industry has a, has a similar story. For me, it was it was Star Wars. I listened to the, the music and loved it. And my mom's like, oh, maybe you should watch the movie. And I'm like, oh, sure. You know, the music's from it, and obviously fell in love and uh, and really captured my imagination of of really what what humanity's future could look like. I'm an explorer at heart, and you know, there's a lot of really interesting, you know, really interesting places on Earth, of course. But combining that sort of exploration and that look towards the future and what what humanity could be at, at one point, you know, I I, uh, I really looked to Star Wars. It really captured my imagination in in terms of uh, you know having more than one world to go to, more than one peoples to interact with, and um, 
and really kind of uh, kind of opened my mind to to looking into into humanity's progress and what the future could be. And and so obviously that really you know got me passionate about space. And um, I went into engineering, uh, you know, for various reasons, not the least of which is I like tinkering and building things and taking things apart and figuring out how they work. And I thought that the, the engineering and technical side of it is, is going to be a huge boundary to get, you know, to get into humanity's future. That's, you know, of course, a lot of humanity's past is, is very technology driven. And so, you know, went into engineering, uh, spent many years in mechanical engineer and, um, you know, of course, passionate about space, got the opportunity to go get a master's degree at MIT, which is, in my mind, not a thing you would turn down and really feel you know, blessed to have made it, made it into that. And so I got to spend two years with, you know, some of the smartest people in the world uh, at MIT. I was studying system design and management. As you know, of course, you know, space, spacecraft, spaceflight, you know, all of these the tools we use in that industry are, are these very complicated systems with very tight requirements. And so that obviously is a very important part of space. And, and I, I find a really fascinating way to look at these problems is rather than individual technologies, look at how they all integrate together in a complicated system. And so I studied at MIT, uh, focused on system architecture and spacecraft systems, and, and really started thinking even more broadly than a complicated spacecraft to a, a complicated socio-technical system that is a spacefaring civilization. And that really kind of brought me to where I am today, trying to you know, break down whatever barriers we still have to, to get into space. Because everything is different when you're living with your neighbors, literally for the yeah. duration of your lifetime. Why is it, just to jump back a little bit, so you went yeah. to MIT, you did some research, and now you're trying to commercialize some of that or get into the space industry. Why does it seem like so few researchers focus on the applications and implication? They're much more focused on the, the headspace versus the doing. That's a really great question. And, and I think it's certainly not limited to, to the space industry, of course. You know, all, all kind of research. Academia has this, that's this classic problem. In fact, I spent a lot of time at the Martin Frust Center for Entrepreneurship at MIT. And uh, they've, they've been really founded to confront this problem along with the uh, Technology Transfer Office at MIT to really take this this academic work from the lab and into, into practice. In my mind, I think the, the biggest problem is this, is this gap, mostly around funding, really. A commercial endeavor, you know, it has to be a sustainable business. It has to have customers that are willing to pay for value, and it has to be able to create this value for less money than the customers pay. I mean, that's kind of obvious, more money coming in than going out. But, but getting to that point is, is very difficult. And on the research side of things, there's very little focus on the potential profitability of, of what you're researching. Uh, the you know, research is paid by grants and fellowships and, um, you know, sometimes companies that are trying to solve more kind of headspace issues and, and get it kind of more from a consulting side of things. But when you're developing new technology, the research is really focused on what can we do that's never been done before. You're, you're pushing the envelope. You're really looking at the fringe and, and figuring out how you can do it. But once you've done that, in order to have a business, you need to figure out how you can do it profitably because, you know, not so you can fill your pockets with cash, but so you can make a sustainable business and, and keep doing it and provide that value to customers. And if you can't do that profitably, you don't have a business and that you can't spend money generating that value. Um, but there's a big gap in the middle there, taking a, a technology or a, a methodology or a tool that you've developed in, in research in the headspace and figuring out how to do it in a way that you know, generates more value than it consumes and that customers are willing to pay for, pay for that gap. And, and that's a difficult problem. That's, that's, it's a difficult problem. 
And it's especially difficult if you have to play the public markets like Elon has had to do lately. Yeah, yeah. There's, um, that's complicated. It gets very complicated very quickly. I mean, again, if you, you put on your kind of system thinking hat, uh, which is, of course, one of my favorite hats, you know, it, you have a technology and you can look at just that technology and say, okay, I can do this thing. How do I make this thing uh, for cheap enough that someone, someone will pay for it? It's cheaper than the value it generates. That's just the technology side of things. But you're absolutely right that you also have to consider this greater system beyond the technology, the, the competition that's in there, the public markets, what, uh, importantly, what, what people are willing to invest money in. You know, VC is one of the vital tools to, to bridge that gap, getting, getting venture capital funding for equity. You know, but they're often not going to just jump in on, hey, you have this research paper that has good science behind it, we'll give you money to turn into a business. You know, they, they need to see more of those pieces start filter, filter in. And so you've got to play, you know, play the equity market, the VC market, figure out where to get angel funding and go through all of these steps to kind of cross the gap from we have a technology or a tool or methodology to we have a product that we can sell. And that, that in and of itself is this complicated ecosystem of, of very many different moving pieces, all with kind of different requirements of what they want to see. And, and it is a difficult thing to, to kind of navigate, I guess. What are the unique challenges of starting a space tech startup? That's a great question. You know, obviously, starting a, a new company, a startup is, is a challenging endeavor. Space, space flight is, I mean, this is rocket science. This is very classically also a very challenging endeavor. And we're taking the two of those and we're mushing them together and, you know, in some ways getting the challenges of both. And uh, I, I think there are, there are some unique problems that arise from trying to do both of those simultaneously. And of course, you have, you know, the, the, the same problems that all startups face, the same problems that all rocket scientists face or, you know, space scientists and engineers. Um, I think the, the, the problem, the issues when those cross over are, are very interesting. I've seen in the past a lot of, especially in the, in the launch industry, a lot of uh, problems when a group of people get very excited about the rocket science of it and, and try to raise a business on that, on that passion, knowing that there's a business opportunity there. But in turn, uh, focusing so much effort on the rocket science, which is from a technical standpoint, you know, the very interesting part of it. And, you know, obviously a lot of people get very passionate about rockets and that space science and that engineering, but don't really consider you know, whether or not that that's the right way to run a business. I think an interesting example of that is Firefly Aerospace, who in, I believe it was mid to late 2016, they had been going for multiple years. I think they had 50 to 70 engineers on staff. They missed a, a round of funding and, and had to close their doors. Uh, Furlough, I believe it ended up laying off most of their staff. And they had for, for many years, obviously identified an interesting market opportunity in dedicated micro launch CubeSats, but really grew this huge team to develop their own rocket engines and do this rocket science that you know is difficult for a company like Lockheed Martin or Boeing or United Launch Alliance, but then trying to do that in this in this startup environment that really requires a different approach to to engineering, and that I think is a is a very difficult problem in particular for the the space entrepreneur to balance the t- difficult technical issues and the interesting technical issues with uh, the constraints of running a startup and doing it lean and making the most use of your money to get to customers as quick as possible. I know part of what you're focused on is the the applications, i.e. the economic drivers and asteroid mining is something that has come up and something you're focused on. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts? I know planetary resources is shut down recently. 
Yep. What are your thoughts on the future of asteroid mining and where we are and what a, what a realistic time frame might be? That's a good, that's a very good question, uh, uh, as most of yours have been so far. I, I think planetary resources is definitely a complicated situation, and I certainly don't know all of the details. I would suggest that they, they kind of ran into, ran into the problem I talked about earlier of over-engineering for a startup while having to balance how do you under-engineer for a spacecraft. And I think they had that problem. They had, again, a, a quite a large staff of engineers trying to figure this out, which is, you know, in some cases necessary, otherwise you're under-engineering you know, for the spacecraft. I think they ran into another problem uh, that, that the space entrepreneur uh, uh, comes up uh, against. And, and that's sort of this, this bridging the gap uh, uh, issue, which I talked about in, in terms of academia and startups, but is also an interesting issue with, with the space industry and asteroid mining in particular of bridging the gap from, from being a startup now and developing your technology and staying focused on that to getting to the point uh, where you have customers in space, when we're looking at the development of a nascent industry uh, that that can't get you the traditional three to five year return that a VC is expecting, and and that's a difficult another you know difficult problem to balance of, of being able to stay focused on your ultimate mission while you know hitting the right types of milestones or incomes or whatnot to to you know make these baby steps across that gap uh, and and be able to maintain funding in your staff. And um, I think planetary resources had a little bit of an issue with uh, with pivoting. They you started obviously focused on asteroid mining. They spent some time developing a spacecraft for Earth observation, um, but that split their focus in a way uh, where Planet Labs or now just Planet absolutely focused on Earth observation, and you know that allowed them to really aggressively nail that that domain. While planetary resources developing these asteroid mining spacecraft that they're using Earth observation as a short-term goal to earn money uh, while still developing the technolo- technological expertise they need and, and then focusing back on asteroid mining and this, this type of, of pivot back and forth, uh, I think was detrimental to their success. Maybe not, not the single killer as it were, but these factors kind of, kind of add up. And so I think, you know, in, in some ways there are some very interesting and, and appropriate lessons to be learned from that in terms of asteroid mining at large, the future of it Asteroids with with the with the, the collapse of planetary resources, you know, asteroids have not become less valuable. They have not become less important to the future of humanity in space. Just one of the higher profile companies that we're working on that uh, aren't aren't working on. That's that's you know from that's difficult from from some of the dimensions, but not others. Like I mentioned, asteroids are still critical to the to the future of humanity. We can get into that more if you'd like later. Um, and the technology to get to those asteroids. You know, hasn't fundamentally shifted. You know, with a high-profile uh, problem like planetary resources, you have issues on the other domain of um, how are we going to get money into the asteroid mining industry to keep keep going after these? Are VCs going to be jaded by that and not want to invest in in other companies that are are going to pick up the mantle after planetary resources? And and so I think the issue with that on a global scale is this perception of you know, did they class because asteroid mining is not viable or because they're way ahead and, and we're actually 20 years farther behind than, than we thought we were. And I don't think that's the case, but there's this perception issue of getting to it. In, in terms of timelines, I can't speak too closely to that. I think there's a, a chicken and egg problem isn't the right way to say it. Uh, there's a lot of work in asteroid mining from the mining side of things that needs to happen now. Prospecting is a huge portion of that. It needs to get started right away so that when we're ready to launch, we have the data we need. Uh, there's technology development, designing these deep space probes, testing and proving them out so that when we're ready to launch, you know, we're all ready to go. On the flip side, we also need those customers to be creating demand in space for these in-space resources. And 
you know, you could look at that as this, when will that ever happen? But I think there are some signs that are really pointing to that demand materializing very quickly and the real gating item being our capability to go out there and, and mine the resources. Does it take a, a god founder like Elon that has both a vision and is charismatic enough to A, put in all of his money essentially, and B, go at something and keep investors around long enough to be able to achieve? I know his goals are the, the 3 million person colony on Mars to have a backup plan for, for Earth. Let's talk about big and outlandish goals like that. How do you move towards that without falling into a situation of we're doing a, a pointless pivot to try to make money and that ends up killing us because we try to t- kill two birds with one stone and it takes two? Yeah, there's, you mentioned the God founder, that obviously helps, you know, it, it would be great if, if that would materialize for asteroid mining. I think counting on that is unrealistic. If we're, we're building businesses on this, we can't take a long shot bet on, on a, a, a God founder coming in or, or, you know, some archangel as it were. I think there's a very interesting middle ground here in, in, in the idea of a, a mega fund. This is something that I first uh, heard about in the context of, of biopharmaceutical research and, and applied to space. Uh, I think it was a paper by, by some students at the Singularity University, if I recall correctly, uh, that, I, that I read when I was at the uh, International Astronautical Congress in, in 2015. And they looked at, at applying this concept to space. And I think that barring one person with this global vision, there is room for, for an, uh, an entity, uh, be it a corporate entity or or particular type of VC or other, other financial institution, in a way, rallying the, the money of a lot of people who are passionate about space, but have you know, less money than a God founder would have. But rallying that all together in, in some type of mega fund that has much more money than a VC to invest, you know, say three to $30 billion, which collecting a lot of money is not a trivial ask. And then, and then someone that has a vision and the patience, importantly, the patience, to invest in a wide variety of space endeavors uh, and, and do so strategically, looking at different different companies that can lift each other up and get to the final state that we want and make these investments across the industry and with a strategic eye and with the patience to wait longer than the three to five years, but give it 10 to 20 to 30 years return, you know, th- that could be very powerful. And I would suggest a mega fund that is investing in multiple different areas strategically could be even better for the future of the industry than a single founder putting a lot of money into into one endeavor and driving it really hard. That's what we're looking at building with the Forever Fund, something that is a, a long-term fund that can have that focus of we don't need returns now. That's the biggest problem with ventures. It has yeah. a, a five to 12-year time horizon. The, the, SoftBank, exactly. the SoftBank $100 billion fund is moving in the direction of what you're talking about, but not necessarily the same type of same type of breakthrough tech. It's much more incremental tech. Right, right. And and this could this could help with all of these issues we talk about, this gap that you bridge from brand new technology to uh, a business that runs, this gap between working on technology that is going to be wildly profitable in 10 to 20 years. And yeah, and, and some very large fund with patience and a strategic eye could, could do that. And I think that's actually a, a, a Another important point, and, and you know, the, I talk about the strategic eye, and, and of course, I think for I think of this from a system architecture standpoint, it, it, which also sort of gets into this third option of, hey, we don't have a mega fund, we don't have a god founder, how do we go from where we are now to where we want to be? And if you can envision, which maybe isn't quite the right word, let's say define what that future state is. If you can define what you think the future of humanity in space should be in in 50 years and 100 years 
and look at that system, look at the, the architecture of that system. Where are these people living? How much resources are they consuming? How much resources do they need to emplace the infrastructure that they'll be making use of? What's the mean time to failure of these components? So how, how much do we need to repair? How are we going to do that? You know, all of these, you know, obviously global architectural issues, but get down to the, even the accounting of resources in and out of a moon and a Mars habitat and how they work together. If you can, you know, model in a way and define that system, then we can start looking at, you know, well, here we are now in the present. What components of that future architecture are we missing? And which one though, and, and how can we design them in a way that, that builds logically that creates a, a smaller system in, in Earth and uh, in Earth lower orbit. And how can we design that system in a way that the components we're, we're working on now are going to be profitable for the short-term human system in making sure that those, you know, th- that technology is, is going to be applicable to this, this far future system. And, and we grow from that LEO to that cislunar space. If we're on the moon and in LEO and on Earth, what technologies and, and capabilities do we need? And how can we design those in a way that they're also applicable to that inner solar system, human collective. And I, I think looking at it from this, this systems perspective that, that layers on top of itself, we can identify some very important you know, technologies and important avenues of, of effort uh, in the short term that will provide us these shorter term gains in this near-term space-faring you know, civilization, but will also be able to be extended to this long-term you know, more extensive space-faring civilization uh, in a way that we don't end up duplicating effort or having to, to redesign things from the ground up. Uh, because every time you add an obstacle like that, you're, you're making it that much harder to get humanity you know, where we want it to be. Speaking of which, what are the prereqs, both economically, politically, and technologically, to become a space-faring nation? I'll make you go even further. Okay. All right. You say socially, technologically, and... Uh, um, politically say, or economically. Politically, politically, economically. I could I could probably talk for for hours on each of those. You know, obviously giving all of these a, a big amount of thought. Um, the perhaps I'll give you an, a, a kind of snapshot of each, and we could delve deeper if you want. And let's start politically because that's an, I don't know, because that's an interesting place to start. I guess I think there are two big political uh, steps we need to make. One is a worldwide organization, and that that is. A, a collaborative environment across you know, spacefaring nations in the world, across everybody in the world, everybody. I still get a little bit teary-eyed when I read stories about the Apollo moon landing and how people across the world were watching on the TV everywhere. And I think that solidifying that multilateral cooperation is going to be more and more critical the deeper we get into space. Because on Earth, we have borders, we can patrol them. If someone comes in and tries to Take your resources and tries to move into your land. You know that can be that is very formally an act of aggression, and worldwide politics uh, expect you to react as if that was an act of war, essentially. Uh, in space, where we don't have those similar property rights, where the U.S. and China and Russia and Canada and uh, Europe and India, etc., we can all get to the moon equally well. The territory blurs, and I think the most productive way to deal with that is is shift our politics to this multilateral cooperation and this attitude of we as humanity are going to the moon, not we as the United States are going to the moon, or we as it, the European Union, etc. So I think politically, multilateral cooperation is really important. And I think the legal framework is, is vitally important. We've got the Outer Space Treaty of 1967. There is no teeth to that. There's no enforceability. If there was, there's still a clause where any country can drop out with six months notice. There is this, cl- this clause of, of 
no no claims of sovereignty, no national appropriation, but that is is a little bit vague. And and in fact, the U.S. and Luxembourg have both gone gone record uh, enacting laws that support countries from their their excuse me companies from their country to go uh, mine in space resources and and claim legal ownership over the resources that they extracted, uh, while not claiming ownership of the asteroid that it came from or the section of the moon that it came from. And, it, and that's important. But you know, we need we need laws like that that are that are international, wide ranging, that establish the the legal legal rights of people to act in space, whatever those may be. And so, from a political standpoint, I think we need this multilateral cooperation, and we need and we need clarification of international law, which you know, frankly, might not come until we're already acting in space and and take best practices, uh, or ideally take best practices and and put them into law, or you know, when a conflict happens, figure out how do we deal with this and what laws we should have. So, I think that that's sort of the political steps we need to make. I think technology-wise, we'll hit on that next. I, I frankly don't think that we need any fringe technologies to be a a inner solar system civilization. I think Elon Musk kind of speaks to that too. He says we have the technology. I just want to make make really big rocket. I can make rockets. If we look in in our understanding of of in space habitats, uh, we have you know a lot of good data from in particular the International Space Station. You know there's a lot of engineering work to be ironed out in how we translate that to a Mars habitat or a lunar habitat. But but it isn't brand new technology. In fact, I'd point. Well, we'll get into that later. There's a lot of engineering work to take technology we have now and translate that into the scale and the location and and the, and the slightly altered environment of these in space uh, uh, you know outposts. But but there, from a technology standpoint, I don't think there are any glaring gaps in what we we know we can do. There's just the effort to. to do the engineering work to make it, it space ready. And then finally, you mentioned uh, socially. I guess I'll touch on economically, kind of separately from social and political. That that BFR and million person Mars colony is a huge economic endeavor. And the better technology we have, the cheaper it will be to do that. We have the technology now that can get us there. It's going to be expensive. Better technology might make it cheaper. And so in some ways, those go hand in hand. How much we spend on technology development now to make colonization efforts cheaper in the future or you know, easier to do versus how much do we spend getting those colonization efforts underway, underway now. And I think a big economic driver is, is, is resources, as it has been in the past, as, as you can look into to, you know, colonization, expansion efforts, uh, humanity's past, some you know, more successful than others, some more uh, ethically responsible than others. But there's, there's always been a driver of, of the economic frontiers that expanding our sphere of influence, uh, uh, you know, allow us to reach. And and so, you know, I doubt we're going to find reserves of oil on Mars. If we did, I'm sure we'd send people there. But but I think establishing economic activities in space is going to be a huge driver to bringing more money into the industry that can fuel more technology development and more, um, you know, more expansion efforts. And then finally, social. I think this is a very interesting question. And I don't fully understand all the implications yet, but I've been mulling it over for, for quite a while, uh, as you can imagine. I think there, there are some interesting social and cultural shifts that are going to have to happen that will happen naturally regardless, but the, that we should start thinking about now. One of these is, for example, the, 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 the idea of, of homelessness. Uh, in space, there, you, you can't live 
under a bridge. There are no bridges on the moon. If someone built a bridge, you know, in between two hills on the moon, you can't live under it. There's no air to breathe. There's no pressure to keep your your body from, you know, sublimating essentially. That fundamental resources like Maslow's hierarchy of need level negative one of I can I have air to breathe, that is not free in space. And importantly, any space habitat has to account for for all of it. It has to be accounted in the books. We have to know how many people are using oxygen and generating carbon dioxide because we need a system that can turn carbon dioxide back into oxygen for exactly that many people. And and so all these resources, not just the air you breathe, the pressure that's there, the space that you take up, that is that is not free. That needs to be accounted for. All of these things need to need to be accounted for. People need to be able to develop these systems, to maintain these systems. And there's no there's no margin for for kind of living freely off the grid, as it were, from these systems that that we humans have put in place to support life. I think the first generation is going to be pretty obvious. You send people to the moon to set up a habitat. They all have roles and responsibilities. They have you know essentially jobs to set that up that provide value to the colony as a whole. That they're given back that value in in food and and light and air. You know, as the generations move on. We need to have some type of cultural and societal shift to how we deal with with work and value and both generating it and and receiving it because freeloading is not an option in a an intentionally designed you know life support system. That's interesting that you bring that up. Do you think it will be so constrained, or as we're moving towards at least on Earth a more abundant future where we can manufacture what we want, energy is becoming closer and closer to free. It will eventually get very, very close. Do you think that some of the same implications will play out in space, or will space be the the wild west? I have kind of two answers to that. The first one is personally, I'm unconvinced of the idea of a post scarcity future. Humans have the the annoying capability, like any organism in a trophic system, they expand to use all of their resources. And when they have used them all, they stop expanding. You know, we're intelligent and sentient, but I don't think that has completely elevated us beyond this idea of we have free energy. I'm going to find something really interesting to do with a ton of energy. Maybe it has. Maybe now we're just so curious that there isn't going to be free energy because Someone that's really curious is going to see what happens when you plug 1.21 gigawatts into a Mr. Fusion reactor or whatever. And, and so while I agree that, that a lot of things are becoming de, you know, democratized and then demonetized and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, I, I'm unconvinced that we'll get to a point where we have such an abundance we, that we can't even think about how to use that much that everything is free. So I would, I would in some ways challenge the premise of that question. In other ways... If we get to that point, which, you know, color me wrong if necessary, if we get to that point, that would be wonderful. I have all four, of course. If we get to that point on Earth, that does not mean we've got to that point in space. If energy becomes very abundant, that still doesn't mean that we have free oxygen. That does not mean that we have free space. Energy doesn't give you more living space on the moon until we also have the technology to do force fields because your habitat in space is in, in some ways, largely predicated on shielding yourself from radiation from the sun and from you know cosmic radiation outside our solar system, and and you don't have that extra space until you have built a habitat over it. And the freer the energy, the better you can pay a robot to lay a regolith on top of a structure. Someone's got to design that robot, keep it running. Another another issue is food. 
you know, more energy doesn't, doesn't trivially equal more food. You need space to grow it. You obviously need the energy, but you need the, the, the mineral balance. You need phosphorus and nitrogen and another fertilizers. You need to get those from somewhere. They need to get from an, an asteroid even. There's, you know, more parts per million of phosphorus on an asteroid than platinum in some cases. But you need to get it from that asteroid to, to the lunar surface. And even if the energy is cheap as free, there's still this temporal issue, which comes up in a lot of, a lot of space things we can get into. And there are these boundaries that, uh, that will constrain the system. And, and there will still have to be a lot of effort to go from a you know, constrained one-for-one uh, -one life support colony to a, a colony that has the life support capabilities that is, you know, some exponentially greater than the amount of people that are living there. And I would, I would challenge that we may not get there. I haven't run the math, but we may not get there until we have the technology to terraform an entire planet. And realistically, re realistically, we'll probably be living in off-planet off habitats, O'Neill cylinders, et cetera, Dyson swarms, just because it is so much easier to do on a shorter time frame than it is to, to terraform a planet. But what I wanted to what I wanted to ask or bring up is, do you think in space we'll have similar dynamics of politics and economics? Will it be capitalism? Will it be democracy? Will space have their own countries? How do you see things like that playing out? Oh, that's a great question. I, uh, I've been thinking a lot about that. And I can, you know, as a thought experiment, I can come up with systems that are, that should be fundamentally stable, but answer that question very differently. They're very different architectures to those societies. I would like we have on Earth, I, I would not be surprised if in 200 years we have multiple different answers to that question at different places in space. It, as to, you know, is it a democracy? Is it capitalism? I think that in some ways gets back to my previous point about how you deal with, with the fact that everything needs to be accounted for. Everything needs to be paid for. The air you breathe needs to get paid for somehow. There, there should be a cultural shift where every person has the responsibility to generate the value to the civilization that is equal to or greater than the oxygen and the pressure and the food, et cetera, that, that they need. Can that work in a capitalistic society? I think so. But there, then we're looking at ethical shifts from, uh, in terms of ways to deal with a freeloader, you know, when, when you have an undifferentiated resource like oxygen that you can't exclude people from. Do I think that that could work in a, you know, purely socialistic way? Uh, absolutely. I think that, you know, similar, you need an economy that's not, you know, not capitalism. You need, uh, you know, some economy that can deal with, with, you know, people generating different types of value and receiving similar value. And you need, again, some cultural shifts in terms of, you know, what people's expectations are in a, in a more socialist environment. I think they could both work and I think they could both fail. Um, and, and there's a total spectrum of utopia to, you know, you know, abject failure and to some dystopian scenarios in the middle where the, the societal expectations, the culture has not shifted appropriately to deal with the unique problems of, of living in space. They, if, if they haven't shifted in the same way that the economy, the politics have shifted, we'll run into some very interesting and, and potentially catastrophic problems. Like tossing the homeless people outside the home so they... Exactly. Exactly. I, that, which, you know, that's the thing. That is a, a solution where if you can't pay for your food and water and you're a, a weakened deficit, you get thrown out of the airlock. And I think of that an abject terror, but that is a reason might not be the right word. That is a, a fundamentally stable ethical shift to match a capitalistic 
society living in space. And that ethical shift would have to happen where that society agrees that it is ethically okay to put someone out of the airlock so that they do not endanger the entire colony by consuming resources that that aren't accounted for. Whether or not I'm for that, uh, you know, I, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna hang my hat on that, of course. But but my point is that that is an ethical shift that matches a an an economic and political shift that provides a solution to living in space. I mean, if you get to that utilitarian of a of a system, you might as well just chop them up and roast them. Potentially, yeah. You, 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 that, that's exactly. If you throw them out the airlock, then they have, in effect, stolen a lot of nitrogen and phosphorus and other minerals that you need to grow food that they didn't pay for. You know, but but you know, in a different side of things, if there is this this ethical shift to a more cooperative environment and a similar economic shift to a more uh, socialist or or communistic society, you know, that can also be fundamentally stable. Where if someone can't pay for it then they don't get thrown out of the airlock, but we all rally together to help them find a way that they can generate value for the company, for the community. And, and then, then you get to have arguments like, well, is this poetry valuable for, for the community? Or, you know, is this poet willing to, willing to help grow crops, you know, for a day job or, you know, that sort of thing. But, uh, and there are many, you know, scenarios in between on either end of, of that as well. Uh, but it is this multidimensional problem. Uh, I do think that it's going to be different than what we see in the U.S. on the ground. I think it's going to be different than any country we see on the ground. There will probably be two O'Neill cylinders close to each other, one where they'll ship out the airlock, essentially, one in which they'll you know, deal with it very differently, but would have other expectations of you. But I think fundamentally, it, it will be different in space than anything we see on Earth. One thing you see about government is its purpose is to make itself larger. And there's, there's pretty much no other purpose. I mean, there's some other purposes, but it's primarily to grow itself. How do you see the expansion in space being, will there be new countries created? Will countries try to claim other countries? I don't see any countries on Earth being super keen about giving up tax dollars, et cetera, for people that are expanding, especially a country like the U.S., where regardless of where you live, you still get to pay your beautiful taxes. Yeah, um, I would, I would again, I'm going to counterpoint a little bit. I would suggest that the, the purpose of government isn't to expand. I think the the drive of many humans and control of government is to expand that government. But fundamentally, the government is intended to pool the resources of the community to provide non-exclusive benefits to the whole community, such as a police force that protects everyone, roads that everyone drives on in space, it's the air that everyone breathes, etc. And and so when we talk about the, you know, the reality of terrestrial governments, how they're run, how they're set up, their, you know, intrinsic desire to own, as it were, more, you know, resources to bring in more taxes to be able to continue running their thing, um, you know, that, that, that isn't going to disappear. And so I do see that extending to space. You know, where do I see humans in, in, in 50 years versus 200 years? I think that they're going to be very different. And I think that the transition period is going to be very turbulent. And, and again, we've seen that in the past, you know, England colonized the Americas and they were low to give up that material resource, that tax resource. And there was a, you know, very turbulent, to, to say the least, a conflict to allow America to break off from, from England. I don't think it makes sense in 200 and 1,000 years that there is the United States, you know, the, the United States of America, you know, rebrands the United States of the inner source system and they have, you know, four states on the moon and 20 states on Mars. That 
in a thousand years, that doesn't necessarily make sense for those people on the moon and on Mars. That local governance is important to any community, I think, to be able to control their, their government and their resources in ways that are beneficial to them. Because people in the United States on Earth are not going to want to spend United States tax dollars to pay for air for people on Mars. The people on Mars find that vital to their survival. In the short term, I think, uh, I think a lot of the activities are going to be commercial in space. I don't necessarily see governments having the wherewithal to begin colonizing but those commercial activities are going to happen under a, a country's flag. Hopefully, we have this multilateral agreement so that companies aren't shopping around to you know different countries uh, you know to fly the flag of of someone who taxes spaceflight differently, for example. But you know there's going to be a transition point where the Earth-based governments who need to focus on Earth-based benefits for their constituents are going to have to separate from space-based governments who need to deal with space-based problems, who have constituents dealing with a fundamentally different living scenario than people on Earth. I expect that to be turbulent because humans' history has shown that it will be. I have hope that you know cooler minds will prevail and and more cooperative arrangements will will grow and blossom to to have a very you know cooperative civilization in the inner solar system that you know isn't bickering over tax dollars, but but looking at what resources Mars can bring to Earth and vice versa, and how we can all work together. Yeah, the, the, the question really comes down to if humanity can learn from its past mistakes more quickly than it can grow and evolve its ability to create larger problems. Absolutely, absolutely. Today's episode is brought to you guys by Monday.com. Imagine being one of the first apps ever in the App Store, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Guess what? It's coming around. Monday.com is launching a platform that powers 100,000 teams' daily work. And they just launched a contest to build apps to be included in their marketplace launch. They're giving away prizes. It'll blow your mind. Imagine if you had been there when Steve Jobs had finally opened up iTunes. It would have been a big deal. If you want to be one of the first Monday.com apps in their app marketplace, start building today. You can check it out at Monday.com disruptors. That's D-I-S-R-U-P-T-O-R-S. Monday.com. It's a work OS that powers teams to run processes, projects, and build custom workflows all in one workspace. It's nice, easy to use, flexible, and great for remote work. Teams of any size, they love it because it allows them to move faster and hit those goals. So if you want to be one of the ones who gets in front of those hundreds of thousands of teams that are already using monday.com, go to monday.com slash disruptors, build your app, build your business. monday.com slash disruptors for more details. What areas outside of your own are you most focused or interested on today? Well, I'm, I'm going to have to answer that in two, in two ways. Uh, on a personal level, I recently got into playing guitar, and I found that getting back to music has been phenomenally helpful, even from a mental standpoint, in terms of being able to spend my time at work focused on these very difficult problems and how I can solve them you know, quickly and, 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 and without a ton of cost. Being able to have an outlet like that to, to just be creative and not, not have those external stressors has been, has been very interesting. And so I would encourage you know, your, your listeners here that, that are thinking about these difficult problems to, to find an interesting sort of creative outlet. And I think music has been proven to be a very powerful one throughout, you know, throughout history. In, in a more, um, or you know, in a less personal, personal standpoint, I've been, been very interested in artificial intelligence recently. I think that, that it will be a critical step to to humans' expansion out, out into space. And I'm not talking about, you know, 
robots that have sentience and are, are robot butlers or or the Star Trek computer that can run a complex spaceship and answer your questions in, in plain English. It, it, although perhaps that's a bit closer. But I think that what's going to be very impactful in space and what's going to be very impactful in, in humanity's future is, is the idea of artificial intelligence and how, how it combines with human intelligence to, to work together to, to be able to you know, create something, essentially create something that neither of them could do independently. If we have the, the artificial intelligence that can drive a six-wheeled robot with, with different actuators and end of arms and, and combine that with a human drive to build a certain type of colony on the moon, when you, when you have that, that guidance and that, that independent capability on a, on a granular level to, to operate that robot, I, I think you've got a very powerful combination there that, that gets you closer to being able to use an abundance of energy to do, you know, physical things that need to happen for humans. In particular, when you have adaptable AI where the same robot can build, gather resources, build a habitat, you know, move a habitat, build, you know, build something else, grab a cargo container, unpack it, put the resources in place. If it's a robot, you're looking at a bunch of different robots with a bunch of different capabilities that importantly, a bunch of humans have spent a lot of resources designing. But I think artificial intelligence can get us to the point where AI isn't designing the robots for us. AI is driving the robots for us and finding out how to use the same flexible robotic architecture to do multiple different types of activities. And then we can spend our resources figuring out what that habitat needs to look like, not figuring out how do we design a robot that builds a habitat because robots we have already do, do other things. So I think, I think AI is really interesting in that regard. And, and I've also been, I don't know, nerding out a bit about, you know, maybe more far future aspects. You know, I think of intelligence as an emergent property of, of a, a thinking system. The, you know, the human brain has, is this complicated system and we can't look at a neuron or because there are five of them in a row, they add up to intelligence. You know, I think we, we have to consider intelligence and sentience as a systematic or an emergent property of this complicated system. And, you know, when we talk AI, you know, I think we're talking, usually we're talking about um, very capable, adaptable computer algorithms that are independent. But I think when, when humanity births true artificial intelligence, it's, it's not going to be as recognizable as we would hope as, as the sci-fi books and the movies have, have led us to believe. You know, I, I think that as our computing systems get more and more complex, there will be an emergence of intelligence and sentience in a way that, that won't look like, like human sentience and intelligence, that won't be as easy to compare to the, the intelligence of a two-year-old as the intelligence of a dog, for example. But I think that's going to be a really fascinating time in human's history and how we deal with you know, the emergence of a different type of intelligence in what becomes true AI. And, and frankly, I hope we see them as, as the children of humanity and raise them in a way that they're part of us. And, and in our old age, maybe they'll take care of us, as it were. But you know, we might have the ability to send explorers out to nearby solar systems that, that aren't robotic explorers because we're humans, we want to go there. But they aren't, you know, flesh and blood humans, but they could be our AI children that, that don't look like us, that their intelligence isn't directly relatable to the way we think, but that they have the capability to go explore as not envoys or avatars of humanity, but as part of humanity. 
So that's one of the reasons I'm really following AI is because I think in the future, we can be part of a society that has flesh and blood humans, that has AI humans. And if, and if we treat them intellectually as part of the same whole, as part of the same entire civilization and society, we as that collective society could go, could go places, could go very interesting places. It's a very interesting world. I agree that it does seem to be an emergent phenomenon. There mm-hmm. seems to be randomness that when you have sufficient randomness becomes ordered randomness or lack of randomness. Absolutely, absolutely. Now the question is just how that happens and when we get there. I know a lot of AI researchers don't even think it's possible. And I feel like people that are willing to say something is impossible are nearly always going to be proven wrong because always is always wrong. Yeah, it, it, I, there, there's a quote somewhere around that. but. If you say it's impossible, you're wrong. <laughs> if you say it is possible, then we can talk about degrees. I, I think uh, I read a book by Michu Kaku a, a while ago, another futurist, of course, The Physics of the Impossible, it was called. And I thought it was really interesting that he categorized impossibility in, in different tiers. And there was like a level one impossibility, a level two impossibility, and I think it was just a level three. And like the level one impossibilities are things that we know, we're, are there, we know that there's no fundamental physical limitation to do this. We just have no idea how to do it. There's level two impossibilities where we don't think this is actually physically possible, but we're not sure yet. And there's level three impossibilities that are our current understanding of the physics of the universe mean that this thing is impossible. If it's possible, we are wrong about how the universe works. And there are only two items in that third category. And I think he's right. What those researchers might be saying is that in my lifetime, there's no way that we'll have a a robot that can think and talk like a human. I would challenge people who say it's impossible or it's far future or it's never going to happen. I would challenge those people to think about AI in a different manner, that, that AI isn't a computer being intelligent like a human is, but AI is a computer reaching a level of complexity where a, a new type of intelligence arises that is appropriate to how a sufficiently complex computer would be able to think. I think that's a that's a great place to wrap up the AI discussion because it's yeah. one that it's one that you can go on and on and on. It's oh, absolutely! Like, it's like a never-ending flywheel. What uh, what areas are you most worried about? Oh, that's a great question. I think there are the obvious uh, the obvious areas of big failure points. You know, reasons why Elon Musk wants a backup plan for humanity, et cetera. And so we can kind of you know gloss over those for now. Um, I'm an optimist at heart. I fundamentally trust us not to nuke the world. You know, whether or not that trust is mis- misplaced is a different conversation. You know, you, you ask what I'm worried about. I would, I would suggest maybe I'll answer a slightly different question and, and let you know what I think the big, the three biggest gaps uh, that we have in, in getting to, to being a spacefaring civilization are. And I guess I'm, I'm worried about successfully closing those. And, and things that, you know, five years ago, I never would have really considered. I would think this is pretty mundane. But when I was at MIT and started really thinking about the architecture of human civilization in space, it occurred to me that, that these three big gaps are transportation logistics, sustainable agriculture, and clean energy, where obviously these are very important problems on Earth, you know, not exactly something that personally I get passionate about. But when, when you talk about clean, a, clean energy in space, then all of a sudden, there's this click in my brain and I realize like, wait a minute, this is a huge problem. Like you're saying, the more abundance of energy we have, the more energy we have to spend on improving the, our, our abundance of other things. Uh, similar with, with sustainable agriculture. Uh, in space, there is no non-sustainable agriculture. Essentially, I guess the non-sustainable agriculture is 
we get all our food shipped from Earth. And, and that is an untenable scenario because the costs are, are astronomical, maybe literally astronomical in, in a sense. And so, so a sustainable colony in space, you know, one that isn't just an outpost like the International Space Station, but one where people you know, live and, and work and play and, and die and, and are born, sustainable agriculture is the only agriculture. And, uh, and transportation logistics are, are fascinating. And actually, I'd, I'd like to dive into that a little more because, you know, as you know, that's one of the problems I'm working on. Um, I think transportation logistics is, is a fund I, maybe I don't think, I know that transportation logistics is a fundamental problem in, in, space, uh, in space flight, in utilization of space. That uh, unlike on Earth, where a car has a linear relationship to the amount of fuel you use or the amount of stuff you put in your truck, to and, and the distance you go, excuse me, there's a linear relationship between the distance you go or the amount of stuff you take with you. There's a linear relationship to how much fuel you need to get there. Uh, the more stuff you bring in your truck, the more fuel you need, but that's a linear relationship as well as distance. In space, that is not the case. You know, we're, we're operating in Newtonian physics here, where an equal, it, it, an equal and opposite reaction is necessary for any reaction that you want, and, and there's no ground to push on. And so we've, we've been constrained by the, the rocket equation. Some people will say the tyranny of the rocket equation. And that's where you have a, a logarithmic increase in the amount of fuel you need based on the linear increase in the, in the distance you're going. We call it delta V, the, the amount of velocity you have to change to go to a different orbit. And so the amount of DV, uh, delta V you need and the amount of, of payload you take with you, those are now logarithmically related to the amount of fuel that you need to, to power this rocket. And, and that exponential relationship, you know, fundamentally constricts your, your activities in space and, and how you can go places and move mass around and deliver goods. And, and I think this, this is really a, a key area where developing better rockets is important, but in space resource utilization uh, is, is really going to be the key in opening up the solar system to us, where if we can get resources in space, that we use in space, now we don't have to exponentially, at, at exponential cost, deliver those resources from Earth. And that's why asteroid mining is, is, I think, critically important. If we can get water in space, we can use it as fuel to go farther. And now we've chopped up those delta V requirements to get to Mars from this one huge leap, and therefore this exponentially large amount of cost to do it to a couple small leaps from the surface of the Earth to LEO and, uh, you know, from LEO to a Mars transfer orbit and from Mars transfer orbit to Mars. And these chunks are smaller and you've gotten an exponential improvement in the amount of fuel and, and therefore the cost it takes to, to make that transportation happen. And, yep. uh, and yeah, so, so yeah, I, I think you understand that, that, that yeah, transportation logistics are, are vitally important. And I think asteroid mining and in-space resource utilization um, are really going to be key to, to opening up humanity to uh, space. Yeah, without gas stations, we wouldn't get very far. Are you saying the, the logarithmic distance, is that based off of launching from Earth or out of gravity, or is that also starting in space and going somewhere else? Uh, it's, it's both. Uh, anytime you want to move a rocket, you want a rocket to change its orbit or, you know, or sitting on the surface of a planet, you know, you're essentially affecting its velocity. And so if you want to change from an Earth-centric orbit to a heliocentric orbit around the sun, and then to a Mars-centric orbit, every time you're doing that, you're changing the velocity of the rocket. It's going faster or slower, and it's going in a different direction in relationship to, you know, the sun or these inertial reference frames that Mars, the Earth. And so every one of those operations uses some, affects some change in velocity of the rocket, and that's that delta V. And so 
And, and you're absolutely right. Every time you make any of those operations, the more payload you take with you, the more fuel, the exponentially more fuel you need. And and similar similar to the size of that delta v. And and that's because essentially the fuel that you need for future delta v changes, even you know the end of a rocket of a burn of a rocket versus the beginning, that fuel that you haven't used yet is fundamentally considered payload that you're taking with you to the next step. And so you have, you know, if you back back into it, you need fuel to land on Mars. Well, when you're going from a heliocentric to a Mars-centric orbit, you need to take your Mars payload plus the fuel to land on Mars, plus the fuel you need to make that heliocentric to Mars-centric transfer. And then when you're doing that Earth to helio transfer, well, you need to carry that fuel plus the fuel to make the Mars transfer plus the landing, you know, et cetera. And so you get this, this exponential increase. And so by having a gas station, as it were, in low Earth orbit, now you're not sending up the Mars transfer, the Mars landing, the Earth transfer. You're not sending that fuel up from the surface of the Earth. You're getting that fuel in space. And so your rocket that goes from the surface of the Earth to low Earth orbit is much, much smaller and much, much cheaper. And the more of those, those depots you have on the way, uh, the, the, the smaller that rocket becomes for each of those steps. And you and you are able to get these exponential gains, or or more importantly, you're able to knock down this exponential barrier that we currently have, and and that I think will, will fundamentally open up space more so than any individual technology you know that we could could develop. It's the chicken and egg problem that we were talking about earlier. Any any big bold predictions? I guess so. Depending on whether or not you already agree with me, you may or may not consider it a prediction. You know, I I think that it's going to happen soon. That might just be my internal optimism. But but like I was saying, I don't think there are very many big leaps. You know, the United Launch Alliance has recently come out saying they'll pay for water on the surface of the moon. I think they they quoted five hundred dollars per kilogram and they'll do it now. If you got the water there, they'll 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 buy it. You know, th- there are some of the you know some of the, the chickens have started laying as, as it were. I don't know how to carry that analogy forward. But you know th- there are things like that that I think are, are, are beginning to lay this framework. And there are people, you know, like planetary research might not be doing asteroid mining right now. I would doubt that deep space industries has given it up completely. You know, I'm obviously still looking at this and, and, you know, working on asteroid prospecting with my company, company at engineering. And, and I know we're not the only people interested in this. I, I really, I mean, my hot take here is that once it gets started, it's going to explode and that's going to happen a lot earlier than, than you might think by just, you know, just guessing at it. You know, this isn't, I don't think we're looking at 50 years till we have people on the moon. It's going to happen soon and it's going to be fascinating. That's how exponential technology works. They had, what, 15 years for the Human Genome Project and finished 90 plus percent of it in the last year. Right, right. Yeah, that's absolutely true. You know, once we have an orbital depot that wants a little bit of water, then we're going to have someone go get that water. And once we have that, then people can use that water from there, that fuel, to go get bigger asteroids. And, and the system will just really build on itself and snowball. And I think that, that, you know, definitely in our lifetimes, we'll, we'll see humanity uh, really get off the surface of Earth. It's the flywheel of progress. Eric, I want to thank you for coming on. I've had you on for a while. What is one thing that you would want to leave people with? And ask a call to action, a quote. It can be anything. Yeah. Uh, how about a call to action and a quote, if, if you'll indulge me? I would suggest that people get inspired or stay inspired. There is a spike of interest in space at the Apollo era that more or less disappeared. But if you block that off on this, you know, 
somewhat very subjective chart of humans' interest in space, I think we've had this steady and somewhat exponential growth. And, and my charge to listeners is and be inspired about space. You know, this is humanity's future in a big way. And, and even if you're not doing anything, just follow it a little bit. Get, get excited when there's a new discovery, a new technology, because, you know, we're all kind of in this together. And if you're not inspired about space, go get inspired about something, because that's just an, a, an important way to live, I guess. And I'll leave you with one of my favorite quotes by, uh, I think Dr. Gabor is his name, from the, the mid-40s. And he said, futures cannot be predicted but futures can be created. And that's just been a driving quote for me as a system architect, as a, as a person looking to the future of humanity here. You know, I'm not going to sit back and try to predict what's going to happen. I'm going to get out there and see what I can do to help create the future of humanity. And, and that quote really resonates with me. And I hope, uh, I hope your listeners will find it interesting and, and perhaps inspiring. Absolutely. This is one small step in inspiring you and one giant leap to make shit awesome. Thanks so much for coming on <laughs> today, Eric. It's been oh, a lot. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Where's the best place for people to find you and learn more about what you do? Yeah, that's, that's great. Uh, I can be found uh, on the web. Uh, my companies are, are Odine Space and, and Atten Engineering. Um, that's odinespace.com and attenengineering.com. And there should be uh, info contacts there. I'm on Twitter at AeroSigma, A-E-R-O-S-I-G-M-A. And uh, it's an interesting way to get a hold of me too if you're, if you're a big uh, a Twitter person. So um, yeah, yeah, you can find me there and, and hope to hear from you guys. Awesome. Thanks for coming on today, Eric. It's been a lot of fun and we always love diving into space. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, it's been a pleasure to be here. And thanks for tuning in, guys. If you've enjoyed this, fringe.fm slash iTunes or slash Stitcher. Leave a review, subscribe and share it with a friend. It helps us spread and get more incredible guests focused on the future like Eric. Thanks, guys. Be the change you want to see in the world. That's something I strive towards and fail towards every single day. If you enjoyed this podcast, if you think the world could benefit from conversations like this, the greatest compliment you can give us is referring to the disruptors to a friend or talking about us on social media. Please take 30 seconds to do so. It would mean the world to us. And if we're lucky, help us build towards a better world. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much for helping us spread the message and have a great day. If you want more of the Disruptors, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to disruptors.fm, where you'll find tons of audio and video interview stories with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. You can also follow me on Twitter at MattWardIO. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review on iTunes at disruptors.fm slash iTunes to help more people discover the podcast and help us make a bigger impact. 